Good evening, good night, good morning, or what? This is the final edition of the first season of A Head Full of Ideas, a Bob Dylan podcast, and this is Chris Gregory. So to end with, this is quite a big one. This is called You Must Forgive Me My Unworthiness, two films about Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Tour. I'll tell you what my film is about. It's about the naked alienation of the inner self against the outer self. Alienation taken to the extreme. It's about identity. It's about everybody's identity. So we, could, so we can superimpose our own vision on Ronaldo. It's his vision and it's his dream. Bob Dylan, extracts from interviewing Rolling Stone with Jonathan Cott, 1978. I don't have a clue what the Rolling Thunder tour was about. It's about nothing. It happened so long ago, I wasn't even born. Bob Dylan, interviewing the Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story, 2019. I want to be buried in an unmarked grave. Bob Dylan as Ronaldo in Ronaldo and Clara, 1978. The two films about Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder tour, made over 40 years apart, received immensely different critical receptions. The Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story made for and shown on Netflix rather than in cinemas and directed by leading Hollywood auteur Martin Scorsese, was almost universally acclaimed. Owen Gleiberman in Variety called it an audaciously alive two-hour and 22-minute Scorsese feast of a 1970s verite sprawl. Ian Freer in Empire acclaimed it as a a multifaceted portrait of a creative artist, a prescient portrait of 70s America in crisis and a meditation on the nature of documentary itself. In contrast, Ronaldo and Clara, directed by Dylan himself and released in 1978, was so slated by critics that it was withdrawn from theatrical exhibition after just a few showings. Despite the obvious commercial potential of any film featuring Bob Dylan, it has, as yet, never been released on videotape, DVD or on a streaming service. In what can only be called a vicious diatribe, the famed American film critic Pauline Kael wrote that the film is marked by an absence of artistic intelligence. The picture hasn't been thought out in terms of movement or a visual plan. It was widely condemned as a self-indulgent vanity project. Today, the Rolling Thunder Tour has quite rightly attained a legendary status as one of the high points, if not, some say the high point, of Bob Dylan's performing career. Scorsese's witty and cleverly constructed film has certainly enhanced the reputation of the tour. As with No Direction Home, his lengthy and carefully structured film about Bob Dylan's origins and his iconoclastic move into rock music in the 1960s, the director worked mostly with existing stock footage. Both films are what might be called quasi-documentaries. Scorsese mixes this material with contemporary interviews, assembling it not in a chronological way but in order to tell a story cinematically. He has the advantage that the material he is working with includes some truly marvellous performances. Yet the two films tell their stories very differently. The narrative of No Direction Home follows the outline of what might be called a pre-existing drama. Dylan vows the world with his protest songs, becomes a folk hero. Then he goes electric and rejects political songwriting in favour of surreal poetic explorations of consciousness and the imagination. The fans, or certainly a vocal minority of them, react with horror. 
They turn up at the shows and boo Dylan's electric sets, culminating in the now legendary cry of Judas at the Manchester Free Trade Hall in May 1966. Scorsese merely has to rearrange his material to fit this, but the Rolling Thunder tour presents him with a different problem in that Whatever its aesthetic merits, it did not change the world in such a dramatic way. There was no conflict with the audiences, no obvious dramatic denouement. Scorsese's first attempt at the film consisted of him assembling the material to tell the story of the planning and execution of the tour. But what he ended up with seemed to him to be rather mundane and uncinematic. So he began to add a number of fictional elements. Thus, Rolling Thunder Review is a very different film to No Direction Home. Scorsese clearly decided to make the film basically a comedy. In doing so, he had the advantage that Dylan's own performance and his interview clips display much of his latter-day coolly self-deprecatory interview persona in which any statements he makes seem deliberately weighted with heavy comic irony. At several points, Dylan even plays along with Scorsese's inventions, although there are moments when he seems about to burst into laughter. There are also extracts from contemporary interviews with Joan Baez, Ronnie Hawkins, Hurricane Carter and band members Stephen Souls and Scarlett Rivera, while Allen Ginsberg, who died in 1997, is featured talking about the tour. These clips give the film documentary credibility, but Scorsese toys with his audience in a self-referential and knowing way, somewhere in the manner of Dylan's late period tongue-in-cheek songs like Highlands, Things Have Changed, Tweedledee and Tweedledum or Goodbye Jimmy Reed. It might be possible for viewers with no knowledge of Dylan's history at all to be fooled by Scorsese's inventions, but the majority of the audience surely began to smell a rat when some of the contemporary interviewees were introduced. Perhaps the most glaringly obvious of these is the Hollywood star Sharon Stone, who claims to have been on the tour as a 19-year-old after having got Dylan's autograph. This is supported by a faked black-and-white photograph showing her as a teenager as Dylan signs for her. She even hints that they had an affair, asserting that Dylan played just like a woman to her, telling her he had written it for her. She relates having discovered that this was not true. It had, of course, been written for Blonde on Blonde ten years previously. Then Sharon gives us a little patented Hollywood sniffle, suggesting that Dylan acted like a cad. Stone's performance is something of a giveaway, in that her reaction to Dylan's supposed behaviour is deliberately overplayed. Scorsese must have known that eager Dylanologists would soon spot all the flaws. Sharon Stone was born in 1958, so would have been only 17 when the first Rolling Thunder gigs were played. The autograph picture had of course been photoshopped, but perceptive viewers' suspicions would surely have been raised already. Another real-life character is Jim Giannopoulos, the CEO of Paramount Pictures, who claims he was the promoter of the Rolling Thunder tour, and who tells us what a financial disaster the tour was. Other interviewees are, however, completely fictional. The actor Michael Murphy appears as the politician Jack Tanner, a character from the miniseries Tanner 88. He claims that he attended one of the shows at the request of Jimmy Carter, who would be elected president in 1976. This is something of an in-joke, as Carter professed to be a Dylan fan and later even invited Dylan to visit the White House. Tanner 88 is a mockumentary directed by Robert Altman. 
by including Murphy, Scorsese is again playing games with the audience, and rather obscure games perhaps, only a few of whom are likely to remember his role in this relatively obscure series from 30 years ago. More problematical is the inclusion of Stefan van Dorp, played by Martin van Hazelberg, who we are told shot all the contemporary footage that is used in the movie. Van Dorp, who is presented as an extremely unpleasant character, makes several appearances. At one point, he claims that he only agreed to be interviewed in order to stake a financial claim in regard to the footage. He states that the film he intended to make would have shown the contrast between the excesses of the people on the tour and the dissolution of society in the, ha- in the land of pet rocks and slurpees from 7-Eleven. The inclusion of these characters deliberately blurs the line between fiction and reality, just as Rinaldo and Clara does. But in aiming for a comic effect, Scorsese rather misses the mark. If the fictional characters had been a little more larger than life, their inclusion might have contributed to making the film a more appealing comic fantasia. But the character of the arrogant and egotistical Van Dorp in particular is merely annoying and extremely unconvincing, especially when he claims that LSD was his drug of choice. Psychedelic is decidedly not. Scorsese's attempts to place the film in a historical political context are also rather unsuccessful. The opening sequences place much emphasis on the state of the US in the immediate post-Watergate, post-Nixon era. Dylan himself comments that things were so crazy that two people tried to kill the president in a week. Much focus is placed on the fact that the tour more or less coincided with the bicentennial celebrations of 1976. Scorsese shows footage of marching bands and characters dressed in US flags. In fact, the first half of the tour, from which all the footage is drawn, took place in late 1975 rather than in the centennial year itself, so... He was stretching it a little bit there. Although the revised version of Dylan's Idiot Win from Blood on the Tracks, released a year earlier, included the immortal line, Idiot Wind, blowing like a circle around my skull from the Grand Cooley Dam to the Capitol. In fact, the Rolling Thunder Review and its attendant album Desire, released in early 1976, had little explicit political content of any kind. The director's visual and narrative tricks are cleverly executed and help the film hold together as a challenging mockumentary. Considerable emphasis is placed on the way films can create an illusion of reality. This is spelled out to us pretty clearly in the film's opening homage to the original cinematic trickster Georges Méliès, whose special effects films such as 1901's Voyage to the Moon were amongst the most important and innovative early cinematic innovations. Scorsese had previously paid tribute to Méliès in his film Hugo, set in fin de siècle Paris. Thus, the director superimposes a convincing narrative shape onto the film and turns out an entertaining couple of hours. But his film is in many ways a reconstruction of the supposedly disastrous Rinaldo and Clara, around which the entire concept of the Rolling Thunder Review was created and for which the contemporary footage that Scorsese uses was filmed. Dylan's movie is far less conventional than Scorsese's and much less professional in terms of acting, editing and pacing. But it is far more serious, adventurous and profound. 
Like 2002's Masked and Anonymous, for which Dylan co-wrote the script and played the lead role, it's a kind of poetic film which ignores conventional cinematic structures and which plays far more radical and challenging games with its audience than Scorsese's effort. In the fullness of time, the Scorsese film will always be in Rinaldo's shadow. There is no doubt that The Rolling Thunder Tour, a Bob Dylan story, is an immensely enjoyable two hours, which Dylan fans will certainly watch over and over. But its secrets will, by the end of the second viewing, have revealed themselves. In the case of Ronaldo and Clara, only through repeated viewings do its real themes emerge. Like Dylan's greatest songs, it can never be tied down to any specific meaning and its dramatised sequences relate directly to Dylan's songs in a way that Scorsese's editions never really attempt to do. In many ways, Scorsese's film is a missed opportunity. By far its greatest asset, apart from the rather cryptically comic persona that Dylan adopts in his interview segments, is the footage of the Rolling Thunder shows, which were filmed during the tour by Dylan's co-editor and cinematographer Howard Alk. Howard Alk, who you might say is the real hero of this story, was an independent filmmaker and good friend of Dylan's, who died young in 1982. He and Dylan had previously worked together on Eat the Document, a record of the epical 1966 Judas tour with the band, then the Hawks, which was made for TV but was considered far too weird to be shown on the family-friendly network of the US TV late 1960s. Like Ronaldo, Eat the Document uses a cut-up narrative with disconcerting jump cuts and other editing techniques, many of which were derived from early 1960s French Nouvelle Vague cinema, especially films like Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless and Francois Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player, in which conventional narrative techniques were sidestepped or satirised. Howard Alk's work in filming the on-stage sequences that appear in Ronaldo and Clara is outstanding. We see the whole band in action many times as they lurch chaotically around the stage with Mick Ronson, recently released from Bowie's Spiders from Mars, on lead guitar. But the most effective shots are the lingering close-ups of Dylan himself, his white face makeup shaded by his cowboy hat, decorated with flowers. Dylan himself is deliberately playing up to the camera, of course, quite aware that his performances will end up in his own film. Scorsese could have used the footage to create a great concert film, just as he did with 1978's The Last Waltz. Given that most of Alk's footage is still unused, maybe somebody will do it one day, we hope. The magnificent live performances of Dylan and the other members of his entourage illuminate both films. The songs are all highly rearranged from their original recorded forms. The selections from Desire, which have been recorded but not yet released, are developed into intense performance pieces. The close-ups allow us to see how Dylan is acting the songs in his own mind. On Isis, he sings without a guitar, illustrating the song with his body movements, just as he was to do much later in his crooning phase of the mid-2010s. He puts his heart, body and soul into every performance. His timing and his phrasing of the lyrics is absolutely impeccable. 
The ragged band, all of them clearly high on adrenaline and God knows what else, respond to his leadership like no other musicians before or since. Though nothing like as technically proficient as the band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the Grateful Dead or Dylan's many never-ending tour bands, the entourage show they can match the incredible manic intensity and vital spontaneity of Dylan's performances. Dylan himself has sometimes been described as a modern shaman, a weaver of magic who casts a spell on the audience. At no other time in his career does he justify this description more accurately than in these performances. In Rinaldo we see full and uninterrupted versions of a highly energised and electrified A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, as well as The Water Is Wide, Tangled Up In Blue, One More Cup Of Coffee, Sarah, and It Takes A Lot To Laugh, It Takes A Train To Cry. In these performances, perhaps the greatest of Dylan's entire career, his improvisational aesthetic reaches a peak. His band features four, sometimes five, lead guitarists, creating a kind of wall of sound behind him in renditions that are never the same from one night to the other. Both films feature versions of Isis, arguably the centrepiece of Desire. The songs on Desire, mostly written in collaboration with Canadian theatre director and lyricist Jacques Levy, were specifically composed to be performed on the tour. Almost all of the songs themselves could be called cinematic. They are structured as a series of scenes and lend themselves to dramatic recitation. By the time the Rolling Thunder review reached Montreal on 4th of December, Isis had become a stunning theatrical tour de force, far sharper and more dynamic than the recorded version. Dylan's film presents this performance in stunning close-ups. Scorsese uses the version recorded at Boston on the 21st of November, which includes more long shots, but is equally impressive. This is one of the few complete performances included in Scorsese's film, which begins with a riveting solo Mr. Tambourine Man, which Scorsese, well, really rather annoyingly, chooses to intercut with scenes related to the Bicentennial and the Watergate scandal. Richard Nixon is shown giving a sanctimonious speech, concluding in the declaration that America acts not just for ourselves, but for all mankind. While Dylan, in the first interview segment, comments on contemporary discussions about the repercussions of the US being chased out of Saigon. But the juxtaposition of the song with these extracts is of limited value. Mr Tambourine Man is a celebration of the power of music to achieve spiritual transcendence. It is certainly an appropriate choice to begin a movie about the freewheeling musical approach of the review. Scorsese seems to suggest that Dylan's motivation in starting the tour was somehow to heal the nation. Here again, his apparent lack of understanding of the real substance of Dylan's songs is demonstrated. Isis is one of the few Dylan performances he shows in full. In his directorial style, Dylan is heavily influenced by European art cinema. In a contemporary interview, he stated that his favourite director was the great Spanish surrealist Louis Bunuel, whose startling films continually challenged the audience to examine the nature of normal reality. The dreamlike sequencing of the movie is a counterpoint to these performances of songs in which the dividing line between what is real and what is not real is uncertain. It is left to the viewer to decide where that borderline lies but it is a borderline that is continually shifting. 
In Rinaldo, Dylan attempts to marry the scatological approach of directors like Boonwell, Jacques Rivette and the French New Wave directors with the substance of his own songs. Very little of the film appears to be scripted, despite playwright Sam Shepard being drafted in to follow the tour, supposedly as the movie's screenwriter. Its unconventional cut-up narrative also echoes the approach of the esteemed beat novelist William Burroughs. But Buñuel is perhaps the strongest influence on the film. Like many of Buñuel's films, Ronaldo is structured like a dream. Each scene connects to the others with surreal logic in a way that is sometimes reminiscent of Buñuel's final production, That Obscure Object of Desire, which came out in 1977. In this film, the beautiful young heroine, the object of desire, is actually played by two different actresses, but the lustful middle-aged leading man, played by Fernando Ray, never seems to notice this. Dylan takes this approach even further by switching the roles of all the characters around. In some ways, all the men in the film represent different versions of Rinaldo, who Dylan describes in the 1978 interview with Jonathan Cott as an everyman figure and all the women play different versions of Clara. Dylan takes this shape-shifting even further by merging elements of fiction and reality in a curiously offhand way. Actual footage from the tour, showing the band arriving at locations in their bus, the stage being set up and fans watching their arrivals, is also included. Although some professional actors such as Harry Dean Stanton, Sam Shepard and Ronnie Blakely appear in dramatic roles, the majority of the parts are played by members of Dylan's touring band, few of whom are accomplished or professional actors. The often amateurish attempts of the musicians to act creates an unsettling effect. In one scene, Mick Ronson has a bizarre exchange with veteran rock singer Ronnie Hawkins, who, according to the film's titles, is appearing as Bob Dylan, whereas Dylan himself supposedly plays the part of Rinaldo refusing him entrance to a room. It's clear that neither musician really knows how to act and that the encounter is just being improvised. Hawkins is also featured in a long-spoken scene in which he attempts to persuade an innocent young girl, Ruth Tirangiel, to go on tour with him. At no point do we really believe that Hawkins is Bob Dylan. Such scenes, especially when contrasted against the high level of professionalism of the concert footage, are rather jarring. We cannot fail to notice that the actors are actually members of the Rolling Thunder entourage, and although the singer in Whiteface on stage is also supposedly a fictional character, it is always obvious that the person behind the mask is actually Bob Dylan himself. In the Cot interview, Dylan states that what we did was cut up reality and make it more real, and that about a third is improvised, about a third is determined, and about a third is blind luck. Statements which could also be taken to refer to both the process of Dylan's songwriting and his on-stage performances, with their emphasis on spontaneity and willingness to create shifting texts, centred on changing, ambiguous narrators. Although Rinaldo may be, at least on first viewing, rather a mad jumble of events, after a few viewings its structure does become clearer. We continually cut back to scenes in which folk singer David Blue laconically relates various tales of the old days in Greenwich Village. This anchors the film in the reality of the history of Bob Dylan, who Blue never refers to as Rinaldo. We also see various scenes filmed in a diner with characters who seem to be ordinary members of the public, 
one of whom frequently plays tribute to Bob Dylan as his hero. Dylan has referred to this character as the Greek chorus of the film, but blues scenes have a similar function. There are also diversions in which Dylan visits a Native American reservation and there are scenes filmed in Harlem in which the unseen interviewers ask various black people on the street their opinions about the case of boxer Reuben Carter, who Dylan, through Desire's memorable opening track Hurricane, is spearheading a campaign to have released from jail for a murder which was, as was finally established many years later, he'd been framed for by racist cops. But the essential plot and the subject of most of the songs centres around a relationship which is failing, viewed from many different angles. Dylan's wife Sarah, supposedly appearing as Clara, who was actually a professional actress and model, plays the part of a road girl who conducts a lengthy negotiation with a trucker as to whether she will accept a ride from him. Later, she is pictured walking through the streets of a city before assisting a convict played by Harry Dean Stanton to escape from prison by presenting band member Stephen Souls with a rope which he throws over the prison walls. But in many ways, the revelation of the film is Joan Baez in her sole dramatic role, who has a remarkable screen presence. She plays a number of female archetypes, including that of a prostitute and an extended scene set in a Mexican brothel, in which she adopts a very convincing Latino accent, and the virginal figure of the woman in white, a role also played by Sarah Dillon, as well as featuring in the concert sequences. These include her duetting with Dillon on the old Johnny Ace song, Never Let Me Go. In Rinaldo, we also see her performing what is generally acknowledged to be her finest composition, Diamonds and Rust, which is quite explicitly about how Dylan calls her out of the blue and invites her to join the tour. In the onstage scenes, the sexual chemistry between her and Dylan is quite explicit. The presence of Baez appears to signify that there are many clearly autobiographical elements in the film. The climactic scenes feature a strangely surreal confrontation between Baez Dylan and Sarah as the woman, Rinaldo and Clara, in which Clara acts with extreme jealousy and possessiveness and Rinaldo makes rather vague excuses for his unfaithfulness, claiming he loves both women. Baez remains oddly serene and detached throughout. Of course, the audience knows full well that they are watching Bob Dylan, Sarah Dylan and Joan Baez playing out the scene, which in some ways reflects what happened in real life. If the film's main theme is, as Dylan has stated, that of identity, here he presents himself as being caught in the middle of a parody of his own real life, playing with the audience's preconceived ideas about the characters on the screen. Another major presence in the film is the great beat poet Allen Ginsberg, for whom Dylan had a long professed admiration and who appeared in the earlier gigs of the tour reading poems in between acts. He's also shown performing Blake's Nurse's Song on the harmonium and reading extracts from his great poem Kaddish to a bemused audience of very respectable middle-class Jewish women, as well as leading the whole troupe in a rather hilarious faux-Buddhist chanting and dancing scene on a beach. Ginsberg, who in later years stated publicly that he regarded Dylan, rather than himself, as America's greatest living poet, is credited as the father. 
One of the movie's most genuinely moving scenes occurs when we see Ginsberg and Dylan, dressed in his Rinaldo garb, visiting the grave of Jack Kerouac in his native town of Lowell, Massachusetts, during which Dylan, or Rinaldo perhaps, declares emphatically that, I want to be buried in an unmarked grave. You can make of that what you want. Through the character of Rinaldo, Dylan thus expresses the essential ambiguity of his public persona. This was particularly pertinent in the context of the mid-1970s when his years of domestic retreat with Sarah and their growing brood ended and he returned to becoming a public figure. In the songs of Blood on the Tracks, the real-life anguish of the breakup of his marriage was filtered through a song cycle in which fictional characters are depicted in various interactions from a range of different perspectives. Dylan himself once claimed that the album was in fact based on short stories by Anton Chekhov. He also claimed that Sarah, the explicitly autobiographical song that concludes Desire and which features prominently in Ronaldo and Clara, was not about his own wife but about the biblical wife of Abraham. Very few people, including perhaps Dylan himself, really believe such pronouncements. Always wary of those who try to treat him as a celebrity, he has always taken pains throughout his career to separate his art from his work. But there is little doubt in much of his mid-1970s work he is wrestling with the legacy of his broken marriage, an element which is virtually ignored in Scorsese's film. The impassioned performance of Sarah in Ronaldo and Clara is thus especially heartrending. Dylan may be disguised in whiteface, but the expression of passion, regret and tearful nostalgia for the lost precious moments of family life is palpable. Despite its author's denials, this is the one song in Dylan's catalogue which is unquestionably autobiographical, and in which the barriers and masks he adopts to separate his private life from his public persona break down. When he sings, You must forgive me my unworthiness, he is undoubtedly making a confession of his own guilt in regard to the collapse of his marriage. The power of the song is intensified by the fact that the songwriter who Byers characterised so accurately in Diamonds and Rust as you who are so good with words and keeping things vague is opening his heart in a way that he has never done before or since. The admission that he stayed up for days in the Chelsea Hotel writing Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands for you is completely ambiguous. This, for once, is undoubtedly Bob Dylan himself speaking. The fact that he is actually publicly willing to confess that the epic climax of Blonde on Blonde, a transcendental love song full of extraordinary imagery, a song which appears to have no real beginning or ending, and which ultimately describes a love so universal that it truly has no limits, is actually directed at a real specific person, is kind of heartbreaking in itself. This is like Dylan giving away his own secrets. Like the president in It's Alright Ma, perhaps the only time in his career Dylan stands naked. But there, as another confused young poet said, lies the rub. In Sarah, he may dedicate Sad-Eyed Lady to his wife, but in fact it is extremely arguable that the earlier song is really about Sarah, despite the reference to very little else in this song could be said to be specifically about one person. Ironically, perhaps the greatest cover version of Sad-Eyed Lady is performed by Joan Baez on the 1968 album Any Day Now. 
Byers has covered many Dylan songs in her long career, some suited the incredible purity of her voice more than others. She inhabits the song completely. Its rising and falling cadences are perfect for her crystal clear tones. It's hard to believe that in some way she did not think that at least some of the song was actually about her. While Martin Scorsese's movie is in itself certainly one of the great rock documentaries cleverly blurring the line between fiction and reality, Scorsese presents this efficiently as a clever mind game. In Ronaldo and Clara, Bob Dylan goes much deeper into this territory, boldly questioning our assumptions about the relationship between art and life in a way that no other film about popular music has ever done. Saying that the actors in the film can't act is perhaps a bit like saying that Bob Dylan can't sing. In its own unique way, with its dreamy ambience and its ambiguities, it's like a four-hour version of a great Dylan song, which encapsulates his entire personal and artistic history up to the point it was made, even including bits of his own biography, which is extremely rare. But it is much more than an inscrutable intellectual exercise. Behind the shifting realities it presents, we see Dylan truly laying bare his heart and soul, truly indeed, as its opening song hopes for, painting his masterpiece. Um, All feedback is uh, welcomed. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and all those kind of things. Uh, If you look on my uh, website, it's chrisgregory.org, you can see lots of examples of my writing you'll see a text version of uh, what I've been reading out today and my new book Determined to Stand the Reinvention of Bob Dylan is on sale on the site thanks for listening to all the podcasts in this season I'll be back at some time in the future hopefully not too far away with season 2